Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, and I'm delighted to be joined on this show for our first-time guest here, Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept, who is obviously a journalist of considerable repute, but also is a big tennis fan and also dipping toes into the journalism of tennis world. Relatively big feat to be dipping in our little pond. Glenn, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of of the tennis reporting you do, and and I don't know, maybe there's a part of my brain looking to steal a little bit of your territory. So um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm still entrenched in the political world, so I think you're, we're all safe for now. Courtney and I want to have you on the show. Courtney's not on this episode, but we both were very interested in this article you wrote er, uh, earlier this week. We're recording this on July 17th about uh, Martina Navratilova and your efforts to do a documentary on her, which I know you've talked about publicly before. I think you were on John Wertheim's Sports Illustrated podcast talking about it a few years ago. Just ha- just to start from early on, how you got into tennis early on in your in your childhood? So it's interesting because unlike a lot of tennis fans, I never played tennis as a child. Uh, no one in my family played tennis. Uh, but I grew up in South Florida and... There was a big fandom for tennis, I think principally because Chris Everett and the whole Everett family was so prominent in South Florida. Uh, right. I grew up in actually a suburb of Fort Lauderdale, very close to the park where Chris Everett learned to play tennis. That might be part of it. But also at the same time, people you know, who are under a certain age don't realize that prior to the advent of cable – network sports was all there was and whatever they showed is is what you kind of had to watch and although tennis isn't these days considered one of the biggest corporatized sports back in the 70s and 80s when i was growing up with the borg mcenroe rivalry and just john mcenroe and jimmy connors in general and then the everett navratilova rivalry tennis was you know not necessarily in the level of basketball and and football and baseball, but just one small level underneath. I mean, it was a big deal. And so whoever followed sports, my father was a very avid sports watcher, like most of the men of his generation were. You just naturally watch tennis. And and I became very engrossed by it for a lot of different reasons that I didn't figure out until later on in life. But from a very early age, I was definitely a huge tennis fan of men's tennis, but somehow even more of, of women's tennis, which I always found more interesting and more compelling and engrossing for lots of different reasons. What do you think those reasons were looking back? I think that... Um, It had a lot to do with the rivalry between Chris and Martina because I don't – I mean they were so dominant. I mean when you talk about women's tennis, you're really talking about – of that era, before Steffi Graf came, you're really talking about two players and only two. There are a lot of other really interesting players who would make the semifinals and the quarterfinals and the top ten. But those two dominated. You they can go through the statistics. There were six years in a row where no other player won a Grand Slam besides them. And then finally, Hanuman Likova won one. Mm-hmm. Um, they were constantly battling for one and two. They were in every single final. And what made it so fascinating wasn't just the dominance, but the complete and total clash on every level. You know, some people like the Federer and Nadal rivalry because there was a clash of playing styles obviously but is there really a clash of personality that's so evident with roger federer and and nadal are there political or cultural implications to who wins i kind of feel like there's nothing more at stake in a federer and nadal match than who gets to buy their next big boat (laughs) whereas you know with martin and chris the trajectory of both of them Chris being this kind of all-American girl who came from this like very all-American Catholic family who became the beloved face of corporate America, who played from the baseline, who was super consistent, who had control over her emotions versus Martina, who went through all kinds of changes, came from the Eastern Bloc, fled communism, had this incredibly interesting life story. Never really got control of her her emotions until well into her career. So and was a, a very aggressive baseline player. Just the 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 the, compa- the contrast between both of them was not only so compelling but so multi-layered. You know, it seemed cultural, psychological, and even political. That the drama was just very intense, and there always seemed to be so much at stake for me 
in these matches, especially because, as it turned out, Martina ended up as one of the only LGBT celebrities on the planet at the time. Right. Um, and that obviously added an added element for someone like myself growing up as a gay teenager in the 1980s in the world of Reagan and AIDS when you were kind of clinging for anything with which you could be with which you could identify on that level. I, I think that's one. I mean, there's a lot that you just touched on there. I, I first of all think you're absolutely right that the sort of thorough polar oppositeness of Chrissy and Martina, who were not, you know, from almost all of their rivalry at all, bitter rivals per se, but they were very diametrically opposed on a lot of different things and how they were perceived. And personalities, like you said, there's a bigger personality contrast with Martina being much, much more expressive, uh, which may be going against sort of the grain of what this sort of narrative was about Eastern Europeans yeah. being cold and icy and all the sort of typical Hollywood versions of them that Americans got and, in the media. And on the other side, you know, Chrissy kind of being the model of traditional feminism. Right. And yet, at the same time, almost showed no emotions on court, right? Was, you know, kind of the classic ice queen as they used to call women who didn't express any. So even that contrast is fascinating. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and as you say at the end there, I mean, I think people who are, and I'm, I sort of became tennis conscious at the very end of Martina's career after Chrissy Dari retired, but I already could tell this imprint she had in the sport and how the sometimes awkwardness around her and her love life in the sport. And you mentioned this in your piece about how Martina having her um, wife, who she married in a non-legal ceremony, but did marry in a ceremony, Judy Nelson, in the stands sort of forced conversations that, to be had by sportscasters who weren't used to having those kind of conversations anywhere. And viewers weren't used to hearing those acknowledgments of same-sex relationships on TV, and especially with prominent sports figures and, and dominant sports figures too. So I think I think there's something that I think people shouldn't lose sight of that just how ahead of her time Martina was. And especially, I think, with her um, enlisting an engagement of uh, Renee Richards as a coach, which brought a whole different tier of uh, trans visibility at a time in the early 80s. And I guess Renee Richards had played competitively on the tour in the late 70s where that was just so incredibly far ahead of the curve in terms of when trans visibility or people existing were even being talked about. Yeah, I mean, there was so much to Martina that was transgressive, right? So, you know, being openly gay, I mean, people forget that a year or two after, before Martina came out, Billie Jean King kind of was dragged out of the closet mm -hmm. as a result of being blackmailed by her traveling secretary, Marilyn Barnett. And it was considered scandalous because Billie Jean King didn't, want to come out of the closet and identify as as what was then she called a bisexual woman whereas martina you know it was a lot more voluntary it was kind of i'm not being dragged out of the closet in a scandal of shame i'm i'm coming out um this is who i am and i'm, I'm increasingly comfortable with it and proud of it right as you say i'm gonna um put my wife in the player's box so that when you scan the player's box and have to tell everyone who's there to support me, you know, you have Chris Everett and her Catholic mom and her sister and whoever a boyfriend was at the time, Jimmy Connors or other, you know, male athletes. But here mm -hmm. I'm going to have, you know, what was called my long-term companion or my special friend sitting next to my trans woman coach, which, you know, nobody even understood what it meant to be trans at the time, let alone wanted to talk about it publicly. But then there's another aspect to Martina's transgressiveness, which I think probably impacted how she was talked about and perceived and might even be more enduring, which was how she redefined what female athleticism was. Mm. You know, when Martina first came on the tour in the late in the mid to late 70s, she came out of Czechoslovakia. She famously defected and got to the U.S. She was eating fast foods in the U.S., you know, kind of the U.S. diet filled with with fat. And she gained a lot of weight, um, and, and it was a big disadvantage for her. She had this huge talent, but she couldn't really make her way around the court. And then in the early 1980s, when she developed a relationship with the star woman basketball player at the time, Nancy Lieberman, who became mm -hmm. her coach and put her through this unprecedented training regimen, Martina's body transformed into this incredible musculature force of nature that for women was deemed not only shocking, but inappropriate. I remember the one time I saw Martina when I was a child, she came to Miami and competed in this, this ABC program called superstars where celebrities competed against each other. And I remember seeing the bulging muscles and veins on her arm. And it was common, not only for sports writers and sports announcers to comment derogatorily on her status as a gay woman, but also there was almost a sense like, 
she wasn't really a woman. Like yeah. she had transformed. I don't know if people probably remember that in the when Amelie Moresmo at the age of nineteen shocked everybody with making the finals of the Australian Open, and she had a very big physique. Martina Hingis called her half a man. That was the kind of language that was very commonly used to talk about Martina, that it was almost unfair that a real woman like Chris Evert had to compete against Martina. And as she transformed her body, she became even more dominant. She beat Chrissy 14 times in a row at one point. But to this very day, you know, we celebrate really strong, powerful bodies like Serena Williams, because Martina blazed that trail in the early 80s when doing so was anything but admired. Yeah, no, absolutely. There was a lot of a lot of mockery of her and a lot of trying to dehumanize or dewomanize, I guess, her through mm-hmm. saying that she was not a real woman. And that's why she was winning because she was sort of had an unfair advantage somehow that either they would equate her homosexuality with her being less of a woman, with her physique being less of a woman, and that she was sort of beating up on these poor defenseless little girls out there was a lot of time the framing that her career got. And then it took a long time, I think, for a lot of fans to come around her. And I'm sure some never did. Um, But later in her career, when she got older and became a more sort of, which is a classic trajectory for athletes, especially in tennis, Mm -hmm. as the sort of focus, the focus on her softened a bit. You certainly see this with Serena as well. Yep. That she became a more sympathetic character and more, more popular for the tour. And so by the time she went out, she was, I think, pretty, at least got a lot of audible support from the crowds. I don't know if everyone was rooting for as intensely as they did once for Chrissy or for other sort of beloved uh, stars of the day. But yeah, she, she had an absolute journey to go on and that she took a lot of, a lot of bravery. And I think she resonated with a lot of people for that reason. I remember this is separate thread, but I was was doing a, we did a show on here a few years ago about music, about tennis. And there was a remarkable number of songs about Martina Navratilova, like by LGBT artists, I think largely, but also other people, yeah, it's amazing because when we when we announced the film that that we'll get to that that I wrote about, yeah. you know, it made a big splash because uh, it was being done in partnership with Reese Witherspoon, so it penetrated into Hollywood circles and other places that it might not otherwise have have reached. And the amount of people, the number of people I heard from who said, "Oh wow, Martina was also my idol, my role model, my yeah. secret hero growing up." really shocked me because that was not something you were aware of at the time. That was not a prevailing sentiment. Um, And yet she obviously meant so much to so many people who felt like they didn't have a a role model with whom they could connect for whatever reasons of ostracization they were feeling. I remember reading, I think it was a book by Michael Mewishaw that was following the tour in 1991. And he sort of talked about how it was called Ladies of the Court. And he talked about how there was a sort of traveling group of Martina diehards who would sort of follow her everywhere on the tour. And then they just sort of saw her as being their North star in a lot of ways. You know, this group of lesbian women who saw mm-hmm. Martina as being their, their leader as being their cultural symbol as being their face and their, you know, they won with her. They felt they lost with her and just had so much invested in her and her career and her symbolism that I think she really, really resonated with them for sure. So yeah, skipping ahead to the, to the film. So she, Martina retires from singles in 94 Plays doubles again through I think oh six or oh seven. What what made you want to to and at this point? In yeah, your career, and just by just to add yeah. to that, she I mean she wins right. She wins her fifty ninth Grand Slam title. Yeah. one month shy of being fifty years old, right? Which is another just kind of extraordinary aspect to her. Was right. what a physical specimen she was. She was winning Grand Slam titles at the age of fifty, right through two thousand six. So what what made her what made you at this point in your career you've obviously done a lot of different things like you said um, primarily in politics different political arenas what made you want to devote part of your now career and work to doing something on a on a tennis player on this tennis player from an era gone by largely what 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 made you want to, well, to was, do this it was it, it was interesting because um you know when I, I the the work for which I I first became kind of most known um you know, internationally was the work that I did on on reporting on uh, NSA spying yeah. as a result of the work that I did with my source, Edward Snowden, right. that made headlines around the world. And I think that's how Martina became aware of, of who I was. She might have been a little bit aware beforehand, but not particularly. And I started noticing at first she was tweeting in support of the work I was doing because at the time it was pretty controversial. The government didn't really appreciate the fact that I was going around the world publishing all of their secret documents. 
And I noticed that she was defending me and supporting me. And at some point on Twitter, um, I think I might have even said something like, wow, I'm so kind of amazed that my childhood hero, Martina Navratilova, um, is speaking up in my defense. And that led us to kind of start chatting. You know, mm -hmm. I think we exchanged a couple of tweets and then maybe a couple of of, 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 of uh, direct messages. Nothing, nothing out of the ordinary or significant. But for me... The fact that she was speaking about me and then to me, it was funny because by that point in my career, I've, you know, as a journalist, I've met a lot of famous people. I've interviewed world leaders. I've, you know, come to know some of the most prominent people on the planet. And I've never really, it doesn't phase me in the slightest. And I'll never forget the first time that Martine and I spoke. I could barely contain myself. And I called my, well, my best friend from childhood who always knew about my Martina fixation. And could barely speak, you know, and as, as I have said in the piece, it was like a teenager meeting their favorite pop star, which was very out of character for for me and 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 how I interact in it. And, and it kind of got me thinking, wow, what is it? Why is it that this person, you know, I can meet world leaders and people who have done extraordinary things in politics and I can talk with them with no problem. But why is this tennis player have such whole have such a profound psychological hold on me why did she have such a claim in my psyche growing up and you know it was not an easy question to answer and the obvious answer was well i was a gay kid and she was one of the first and only openly gay celebrities at the time so that's an obvious answer but it became apparent to me that it went much much deeper than that and just the fact that growing up as kind of a jewish kid who was prepared to go to law school always and who did go to law school and you know, be, was very politically interested. Like I'd have other more obvious childhood heroes like Daniel Ellsberg was one of mine, the Pentagon Papers leaker, or Woodward and Bernstein, also who I admired, but not, you know, a Czech lesbian tennis player from the Iron Curtain, right? That's not a very obvious childhood hero for me to have. And it led me to start asking what was it about her and about how she affected me that was so significant. What does that say about how we as human beings have the capacity to influence one another in ways that transcend standard demographic and cultural and gender boundaries? And um, I've spoke to a couple people about it who said it would make a really interesting short film just to follow you for the first time that you actually meet Martina. And the more we explored it, the more we decided it could actually be a real deep feature film. And I developed a pitch for it. Um, because I became kind of mm -hmm. fascinated in understanding it. I didn't know what the answer was. And everyone we showed it to, you know, like studios and directors and producers, um, unlike what happens with almost every time you have a film idea where it's hard to get, you know, more than a handful of people interested, everybody was blown away by the proposal and wanted to do it. And we were fortunate enough to have our pick. And, and Reese Witherspoon had just created a production company that she had great success with, with Big Little Lies, the HBO show. That was devoted to telling stories of strong, complicated women, which fits Martina perfectly. And so mm -hmm. we were able to close a deal with with Reese to develop the film because she was incredibly excited by it. And the idea always was to go on a search for that answer for why Martina held such a an important place in 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 my life and my trajectory. And I think the other thing that I see from the outside, and tell me if this is wrong, but I think you mentioned this in your piece as well. One of the other moments is that Martina. I think like you, it's fair or unfair, is it remains sort of an iconoclast in a lot of ways. And I, the, the, I remember when it happened, the interview with uh, Connie Chung that she did, which... Oh, sucked. you remember that at the time? I, I do, do remember, remember that? news yeah. coverage of that, at least. But I don't think I watched it live, but I remember it being written about and being sort of struck by it. So it was, I think, in 2000, late 2002, or it was at some point during the drum beats towards the Iraq war in the U.S. Yeah, that, exactly. It was mid-2002 yeah. when, when, you know, right, it was still in the very kind of post 9-11 climate when nobody was criticizing the Bush administration except in the most muted and respectful tones yeah. at best. Yeah, Martina gave an interview to a German newspaper and she just lambasted George Bush and Dick Cheney, basically saying, you know, I fled a communist country because of the oppression of basic political liberties. I came to the United States in order to live under a system that respected individual liberties and individual rights. And now in the name of terrorism, they're exploiting people's fears to crush 
civil liberties and to usher in this incredibly repressive regime that I never thought I would see in the United States, something that literally nobody had the courage to say at that time about George Bush and Dick Cheney. And the fact that she said it created a huge controversy in large part because there has always been this idea that if you're an immigrant to the United States, that you have an extra duty of gratitude, right? right? That, oh, look, our country opened up its arms to you. And even though Martina had long been a naturalized U.S. citizen, there's always a sense that if you're an immigrant, not somebody born in the United States, but someone who is a naturalized citizen, you're never really a real American. You're sort of an American through generosity of the country. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you ought to be a little more careful about the kinds of criticism you avoid. Here at our pleasure kind of thing. Yeah, something that was Martina was never interested in accepting the minute she became an American, she fully embraced her complete rights of dissent and speaking out. And that was the other thing, right? Was if you think back to the big sports stars of the 1980s, kind of the iconic one being Michael, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan never opined, even in the most anodyne ways about any political controversy, because he never wanted to risk losing his very lucrative sponsorships. Martina was the opposite. You asked her what she thought about anything and out came you know, whatever opinion was on her mind without the slightest regard to how people thought. And that was a great example was to step forward under those repressive, you know, conditions where journalists and political leaders were intimidated and speak her mind in such a provocative way. Absolutely. So knowing all this, I think she, I, I agree with everyone who loved the pitch. I think it makes a lot of sense for to the story on the, on the meaning of her and the meaning of you and how you two intersect. So as you're going along, when did when did things start to get? And obviously, this is all laid out in the article very well. But if you can just sort of talk people through, also when things started to get first started to get complicated in the process, or when you friend here what would count as a first hiccup or, or speed bump. Yeah, I mean, it was you know I don't think ever making a film is easy. I think making a film about someone as complicated as Martina is even more difficult because you kind of it, it's a difficult. You know, I had to find the right director since I've never directed a film. I'm not a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And it was a different kind of film. It wasn't in, it was never going to be a biography of Martina. Right. That's kind of been done. Some great books have been written about the life of Martina. It was really going to be a kind of joint exploration of my teenage years and how they were shaped by her. So it was already kind of a off the beaten path kind of film that required some inventiveness in order to figure out how to do. And then it also needed to be to be somebody who understood Martina the way I understood her, to really understand why she was such a compelling figure. So it took a while to get a director. We found one who was great, took a few months, and we realized we didn't have the same creative vision. And then I finally found the perfect director who happened to be a trans woman who had directed a, a film about her own life as a trans woman. She grew up in Montana went back to Montana and filmed what it was like. She was the captain of her football team. She was the captain of her tennis team, Kimberly Reed. And and she went back to Montana for the first time as a woman after her transition and kind of filmed the reaction. And it was a beautiful, powerful, moving film. We met, we went to New York, we clicked perfectly. Our vision for the film was incredibly compatible, but with enough creative tension to make it interesting. She was about to sign on and then we were ready to start filming. And then in December of 2018, kind of out of nowhere, Martina had seen a photograph of a trans woman who in her mid thirties started to enter female cycling professional competitions where there were monetary prizes and, you know, reward you know trophies and and rankings and all of that whose name is rachel mckinnon and unlike renee richards who was kind of martina's reference for how trans women become women how they compete in sports rachel mckinnon had never had any gender reassignment surgery so she had all the male genitalia with which she was born um she also you know went through her whole life she went through puberty as a man she developed muscle mass as a man And about a year before she entered these professional cycling events, which she began to dominate, she began taking the hormonal protocols required by the sport um, to kind of transform the body physiologically from a male body into a female body. Mm -hmm. 
And the picture that became very popular among anti-trans activists because it shows Rachel McKinnon kind of towering over her competitors, looking much thicker and more muscular and much taller, holding the gold medal, you know, next to these um, cis women who have who went through their whole lives as women designed to be provocative. Martina saw it and she went on Twitter and kind of the spur of the moment said, wait a minute, how, how can this be? I mean, you can now just be a man and say that you're a woman, not go through any of the surgeries, just declare yourself a woman, take a few hormones, and then you get to just compete against women, win all the prize money, win all of the trophies, and then just go back to being a man. That seems incredibly unfair. Mm-hmm. And needless to say, you know, it was expressed on Twitter, which isn't exactly the epicenter of nuance and thoughtfulness and generosity. The reaction was very swift, was very vicious, and was very unforgiving. And it immediately resulted in huge numbers of people declaring Martina Navratilova, who had devoted her life to equality and fighting for people who are marginalized, declaring her to be a bigot, you know, kind of an unrepentant hater, somebody who was anti-trans and transphobic for having said what she said. Martina apologized said that maybe she hasn't thought through or educated herself enough about this topic. She deleted the tweets that people were saying were offensive, and she promised not to talk about it again until Mm -hmm. she was able to inform herself better about what the issues were. That event caused my director, a trans woman, to already start to get uncomfortable with Martina. Wait a minute, who is this person I'm about to make a film about? But still, being a great director... You know, she didn't need to love Martina. It was supposed to be a film that was going to examine not her just her flaws, but mine and all of our complexity. It was about human complexity. It wasn't about the perfect human. Right. The problem was Martina adhered to her vow of silence. She went away for two months and, quote, unquote, educated herself. And when she came back, it was in the form of an op-ed that she published in the London Times in which she said, I've now informed myself and I believe more than ever that it is not only wrong for trans women to be competing against women who have lived their whole lives as women, it is a form of cheating. It is stealing. It is taking these people's prize money just because you take some hormones, which means that anytime you could stop and go back to being a man and make babies, and it's incredibly unfair, and I'm vehemently opposed to it. Shortly after that, Renee Richards who was obviously a pioneer in trans visibility. She sued the WTA in the 1970s for the right to compete as a woman after her transition. Right. Gave an interview saying she agreed with Martina. And she even went further and said that the only reason why she sued for the right to compete on the WTA after her transition was because she was already in her 40s and it was a disadvantage. You know, she was losing like in the first round to Virginia Wade and Chris Everett. But she said, had I been able to compete as a trans woman in my 20s, basically I would have beaten these women to a pulp. It would never have been a fair competition, and it's not fair. So Martina and Renee Richards jointly took this position that is deemed incredibly bigoted and hateful and offensive in the trans community, which is that trans women shouldn't be able to compete in female athletics, and that obviously created a major, major problem for the film and also particularly for the, the trans woman who we were about to hire to direct it. Yeah, a lot, a lot you just covered there. The first thing I want to get to, sort of, thinking, thinking back a bit, you talked about the sort of lack of generosity on Twitter and on social media, which I think is, I, I have definitely encountered that a lot. I certainly am very familiar with that. Hopefully, I've not expressed it myself that much, but I'm sure I have moments of it. And, and I'm, I'm curious, wh- where do you think that comes from in this in this day of discourse? I sort of re- sometimes refer to it as being like the whatever the opposite of benefit of the doubt is, is what exists on Twitter. The worst is sort of assumed about everyone, even people like Martina, who have, and I'm not saying Martina didn't later elaborate and sort of double down on these things, but what is it that you think makes people so quick to to condemn right now? Where does that Where does that instinct come from? Well, you know, I, I think it's such an important question because so much of our social interaction and our, our political discourse and our social discourse is increasingly being conducted on these platforms that are fostering this kind of hostility and this complete lack of generosity. 
particularly now in the middle of the pandemic, which we're where we're all mostly confined to home and interacting with one another more than ever digitally, and, mm-hmm. you know, virtually, and as opposed to um, as human beings, there's almost this kind of like reward system, this incentive scheme to have the world be divided into heroes and villains. Part of it is, if you look at how Twitter functions, the space constraints of Twitter from the start, the fact that you can only express yourself in 280 characters at a time already eliminates any real opportunity to communicate in the form of nuance. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've experienced, had this experience where I fought with somebody on Twitter viciously. We were both kind of performing for our crowds, you know, everybody yeah. applauding me who liked me everybody applauding that person. And then when we said, you know what, why don't we have this discussion outside of Twitter? The whole thing radically transformed, right? Cause now we weren't talking to screen names. We were talking to human beings. We found common ground. We made concessions rhetorically to one another. We ended up liking each other, maybe not fully agreeing, but seeing but, but everything was less demonized. And if you look at the way the Martina, controversy unfolded as I did for the article I, I, I wrote. I really went back and studied how it unfolded, the kind of the granular detail of it. When Martina said what she said, it was so clear she was really just asking earnestly. You know, she was like, she had seen the picture and she was like, wait a minute, how does this work? You know, she was, she was it was nothing more than that. You know, these are radical changes for trans women to compete in in in, in female sports. I think one of the successes of the gay movement in convincing people to change how they think was that there was an effort to engage people on a humanistic level and to say, like, look, we're not these demons lurking outside playgrounds trying to recruit your children. We're your brothers and your teachers and your neighbors and your pastor, you know, and it was a very kind of humanistic way of connecting to people. Social media almost destroys that possibility. So Martina's earnest question got treated as something malicious. And even though she was pleading for forgiveness, you know, she was saying like, please understand, I, I, I didn't mean to offend. Please put this in the context of my entire life's work of not just fighting for women and gay people and marginalized people and immigrants, but also trans people. There was zero willingness to give her that space or that generosity. And I think the reason is, is because the way we gain followers on Twitter, the way we feel like the hero of our own story is if we're battling demons and monsters. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we treat other people as more complex, the ability for us to become, to, to, to gain those social media benefits diminishes. You know, as you and I have discussed before, something similar happened with the professional tennis player, Tennis Sandgren, at the time that he made the quarterfinals of the Australian Open out of nowhere, basically. He had been, you know, a journeyman on the Challenger Tour for years. And overnight, he got transformed into this evil figure. And I purposely reached out to him to see if that was accurate and and kind of to see what was really going on. And the more I got to know him, the more I saw that there was like actually a multi-layered, complex person who had some really good sides to him and some really bad ones, like we all do. And that is what it means to be human, right? But Twitter and online discourse prevents that humanity from manifesting. And that was how someone like Martina Navratilova got turned into, you know, like essentially the equivalent of Pat Robertson, like within 12 hours. It's really amazing to watch if you go back in retrospect and see how it unfolded. And I I do think it's right. It's just sort of shocking how little Martina's reputation and legacy mattered when it came to, you know, who else wanted to respond with their own 280 or 140 characters, whatever it was at that, yeah, I'm sorry, 280 by then, uh, to respond to her and to sort of gain their own clout, I think, through tearing her down. I'm not saying that I agree with her tweets also, but I do think they are, they can be read, as you sort of framed with generosity, more generously than the take that was given. You know, you can't give her more benefit of the doubt. You can't say, hey, she's somebody who is startled or confused by something she sees in women's sports, which is something that she's done a lot to elevate the world of women's sports, and she's being protective of this. And I, I, I agree with what you say, to skip ahead to this, and people may be wondering this, in the article, I think you don't really come to a conclusion on the fairness or unfairness of, or, or just or, of what what's going on with the inclusion of trans women in women's sports. I largely agree with that. I'm, I'm not 
necessarily decided either way. But I, I, I just think that, yeah, with Martina, everything that she did building her legacy at that time, just skipping ahead a little bit after the editorial she did, I think, for the London Times, I believe she was expelled from Athlete Ally, right? Which is which is a U.S.-based uh, LGBT sports visibility advocacy group. And for them to to kick out Martina, given her lifetime body of work, I, I found incredibly sort of startling that people can't that people can't sort of wrestle with with both those things just to emphasize that pen other than billy jean king it is impossible to find somebody who has done more for women's sports and for the cause of lgbt athletes in sports than martina and in fact i would say while billy jean probably deserves more credit for having built the space for female athletes to thrive nobody has done more than martina for the cause of lgbt athletes um to be able to compete anywhere on the planet over the last 40 years Watching Martina Navratilova get expelled from an advocacy group for LGBT athletes would be like watching Martin Luther King Jr., had he not been assassinated, be expelled from a group devoted to combating uh, racism because his current views aren't fully in sync with the new orthodoxies. It was really startling to watch that happen. So I guess this gets to sort of the issue as in the headline of the article on The Intercept. And you talk about wrestling with victimization as being a phrase of it. And it's how a lot of people do frame cancel culture these days. And I think it's just, it's obviously in your, and you can talk through your own thing. I think you put it pretty articulately in the article. You're not saying that you have been canceled per se or been a victim of it. But it is sort of this lack. I think cancel culture is a different way of framing. I think a little bit what we've been saying in terms of just a lack of generosity I think that's it. That's a tentacle of it, or at least a, a layer of it, and it makes things it makes things tough to do when there's a lot of constant sort of purity testing happening, right? In in sports, those are all sort of related phrases these days. They're not in sports, in, in culture more widely, it's not primarily a sports phenomenon. That so many people have, you have there's such a precision which with certain uh, evaluators of conduct on the left and the right, and all sorts of different directions politically expect people to toe the line in order to be permitted to have um, thoughts or voices. And, and Martina, Martin, I will say, is, is to her, not to her credit, is not a particularly precise speaker in general in, ter- in terms of her social media platform. I think she's sort of a, is somewhat of a carpet bombing strategy on her Twitter across a lot yeah, of Yeah, I mean, and, you know, not, not, not to be, you know, look, I mean, I, I live in Brazil for 15 years. I'm married to a Brazilian congressman. I have two Brazilian kids. I obviously speak fluent Portuguese. Mm-hmm. But to this very day, I make errors in my writing in Portuguese. I don't always express myself with the level of precision in my second language as I do in my first, and I never will, um, which isn't to make an excuse for Martina at all. I think she, you know, especially in that op-ed, gave a very thoughtful and I'm sure had help with editors writing it. Um, but I think to the broader point, you know, this whole thing with cancel culture, the thing I'm worried about, the thing I worry about most is, look, I mean, Martina's going to be fine, right? Like Martina made millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in her career. I don't think there's a lot left of it for a lot of different reasons, but she certainly, you know, fine financially. She's married. She has two beautiful children with her new wife. Um, she is a TV announcer. She's admired around the world. She's not canceled, right? Like she's allowed to appear in public. She doesn't. So I think the issue in terms of cancel culture, and I'm not a big fan of that term because it doesn't really have a lot of precision in terms of how it's wielded. I think a lot of times what happens is people who do have powerful platforms, who are elites, who are protected, use the term. And what they really mean by it is it used to be 15, 20 years ago that we could say what we wanted and that we didn't have to hear a lot of attacks. And now because of social media, the mob, people who aren't competent to criticize us now get to make us hear what they're saying. And I think there is a kind of petulance to that critique when they use it. Yeah. What I worry about is the deeper phenomenon, which is if you watch what just happened to Martina Navratilova and you're somebody who doesn't have the status and the power that she has, right? Like you just work in a company, um, you don't have any financial security, but you're somebody who does want to kind of 
ask and question and understand better because you're confused about these changes when it comes to trans visibility or other profound social changes that are taking place all the time. Think how deterred you're going to be, how intimidated you're going to be, how repressed you're going to be. The solution is just going to be, you know what, I'm going to be silent. And this is the repressive atmosphere that's being created when even someone like Martina Navratilova is sanctioned and punished and attacked and expelled for doing something that really, whether you agree with the views or not, and I largely don't, I don't vehemently disagree with them, but I largely don't, didn't come from a place of malice or hatred or bigotry. Obviously, it came from a place of, at worst, confusion and an attempt to understand and maybe just a difference of opinion, like a good faith difference of opinion and creating this kind of ethos societally where differences of opinion aren't dealt with, with dialogue and discourse and understanding about retribution and castigation and exclusion and ostracization. The worry that I have isn't for journalists and writers and athletes with big platforms. It's for ordinary people who don't have any of that. I think, yeah, the point you made at the the beginning of that answer, I think about what people, how people, powerful people who now are seeing more backlash to what they're saying, I think is part of the, is part of the, I think is the less earnest version of, of people using, tossing the word cancel culture around in that, you know, there's a, been a social media, one of the positives of it, I guess, is that there's been a democratization of, of who gets a platform that anyone can now respond or reply to anybody. And, and a lot, and so more people have voices. There's a, the people who are, uh, officially voiceless in terms of not having a space in the public discourse if you count twitter as being public discourse not that it's on the same level even still as you know the op-ed pages of some prestigious newspaper or something uh, where people used to be the only ones who got to sort of opine now the entire twitter.com website is sort of an opinion section in a lot of ways and which is great which is great which is great in a lot in, in theory for sure and and definitely i think can and overall is definitely a positive thing but yeah but it, it does make people who used to think that their views were special because they were a columnist for new york times or something less special now and i think there's resentment of that evolution of this but it yeah it just it, it also seems like um I, I think it's not a coincidence that the issues that martina ran into were issues with um about trans discussions about trans rights or trans visibility, trans debates and sports or anything like that. Because I do think they almost seem that that vein of discussion seems to occupy an almost uniquely electrified sort of third rail in, in discourse right now. And I think it's something that's moved very, very fast to its credit, largely, but at a time when some people like Martina and other people, I'm sure as well, have maybe had a tougher time keeping up with how things have evolved. Because as we said at the beginning, obviously, Martina was somebody who was undeniably a pioneer in promoting and accepting and embracing trans women in society with what she did with Renee Richards. And for her, and now that she's fallen behind, I think it's, is relatively understandable in, in, in the, in the race for this. So again, it's where I would have an instinct towards more generosity than I think she's been, she's been shown. I, I just think there is a particular sort of flavor to to the advocacy happening around trans people and trans but that that's but, but i find that such an interesting i find that such an interesting point and 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 like the question is why right like why is trans advocacy why does it have this kind of different flavor why does it seem more antagonistic and warlike than other causes that have been just as threatening to the social order have you know before i contrasted it with the activism i did in the 80s and 90s well mostly in the 90s around gay issues, which obviously mm-hmm. in our lifetime have transformed radically. Yeah. Where I think there was an effort to kind of engage people. And, you know, of course there were some denunciations and the like, but it was really the the reason why ultimately it won is because um, people got persuaded. They got brought over to the cause, not through being bullied into submission, but through dialogue and discourse and interaction. Um, you know, the other example that I talk about in the piece, the first director that I had um, before I had Kim Reed yeah. uh, was Kimberly Pierce, who who was the director of the 1995 film Boys Don't Cry, which was a, you know, an amazing story. It was she Kimberly Reed was in her 20s. No one in Hollywood knew her. She put together this film. It was about a trans boy in Nebraska who was murdered at the age of 21, raped and murdered. And she got the film made with no studio backing for like less than $2 million. And it was a smashing success. 
Um, Hilary Swank, who she cast in the role of the trans boy, won, won Best yeah. Actress, won the Academy Award over Meryl Streep and Julianne Moore and, you know, all these actresses who are incredibly acclaimed. And I tell the story about how, you know, now she goes on and speaks on college campuses about her film. She herself is gender non-binary, Kim Pierce. The film was like incredibly trailblazing for its time. And yet she gets protested by trans activists who accuse her of transphobia for having cast a cis woman in the role of this trans boy instead of a trans actor, you know, and, and they don't just criticize her for it, which would be great. They try and shut down her speech. They scream until she has to get, you know, escorted out of, of the campus by security. And I wonder if that's because trans activism being so new has largely taken place on social media yeah that's which what i was has gonna say therefore absorbed a lot of this kind of more acrimonious uh conduct no i, I think it, i think it's sort of a, a artifact to use that as a present tense sense of, of its time you know i think that it's sort of this is the milieu in which i mean because think of again it's incredible the progress that's been made and obviously there's still a lot of progress left to go for the trans movement that i hope does happen and occur swiftly and there's still a lot of opposition they face from certainly political forces in many countries including the u.s mm-hmm. um but they but the tone of it is i mean the sort of when you think of the big trans visibility moments and obviously to be like basic about it like you know when caitlin jenner had her magazine cover reveal of her uh coming out as trans uh that was that was sort of i first saw those images pop up on twitter i think it was like around 2014 2015 maybe and so it's very much a recent recent phenomenon that doesn't have you know whereas earlier movements like you know the gay rights movements or the the lg and the lgbt at least uh were happening making probably bigger foundational steps in the 80s and 90s when the the platforms for these were a lot more um they weren't as ratcheted up as sometimes the twitter dialogue is some yeah i think in a lot of ways and you certainly see this again with with like blasting which again i'm not saying it's unfair of like jk rowling who's another person who's in, who's incurred a lot of wrath recently as um mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. for her comments on trans issues again which i'm not saying that people are wrong for disagreeing with her or wrong for critiquing her or you know crit- whatever you want to say but it does come with a certain level of um the way it gets revved up i think is is a uh it's a factor of, of the sort of motorized. It, it, what it does, I think what it does is like it destroys it destroys nuance, you know, like it destroys the complexity of our humanity. Um, you know, just like use another tennis example that I think is really interesting is your really good friend, longtime uh uh buddy Nick Kyrgios, mm-hmm. who you know, like for a long time was talked about as though he was some kind of like incarnation of Pol Pot, right? <laughs> like he did have one incident early in his career that was genuinely terrible. Yeah. You know, like the misogynistic uh, comment that he made to Nick Kyrgios when he was like, what, 19 or 20? You know, I always say that one of the things for which I'm most grateful is that there was no internet when I was 20 years old to record every one of my comments, let alone huge numbers of TV cameras following me around at the time. How many of us could survive that with our reputation intact? But, you know, over the years, like it's turned out that he's an incredibly complex, multifaceted human being, right? Like he does a lot more charity work in a way that seems a lot more passionate and genuine than a lot of his much richer peers do. He seems conflicted about whether tennis ought to be dominating his life as a human being, which I find kind of admirable just recently when like Novak Djokovic and Zverev and Dominic Thiem seemed perfectly cavalier about spreading COVID-19 to whoever they felt like spreading it to there. He was urging responsibility in the name of the public health. And I think it's a really amazing example of how social media took a complicated human being, reduced them to this horrific caricature only for these complexities to arise over time. And I think the vast, vast, vast majority of humanity falls into that range of neither all good nor all bad. And yet that's something that Twitter does a particularly poor job of recognizing. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. Is, is there, is there a, um, a solution to this? Is, is there a way that we can regain nuance in this world or at least in, in this bird app, which we all spend so much time on, on Twitter, is there, is there something that can be done to, to fix this or is this sort of a, uh, endemic, uh, thing when you, when you deal with a, a medium like Twitter, which is all about being short and trying to really sharpen every, every point as much as possible. 
Well, one of the things I found really interesting was, you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners followed, I'm sure you did as well, this letter that was published in that open letter that was published in Harper's last week by a lot of big luminaries in the worlds of literature and mm. journalism and and um and and elsewhere, including JK Rowling and a bunch of other people who feel like they are victimized by what they're calling cancel culture or an intolerance of debate or an intolerance of free discourse. And in general, I do think that oftentimes what happens is when there's a, a, an injustice being perpetrated in, in society, the people who are on the receiving end of the injustice are very upset about it. They see it clearly. They, they want to fight against it, but they often don't have the means to do so. The people perpetrating it don't see a problem because they're not the ones being affected. Yeah. What we're seeing now with these social changes in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement – and just the general change in social mores is that a lot of the most powerful people are now being held accountable in ways that previously they never were, which is why suddenly people like the billionaire J.K. Rowling can see herself as a victim. Um, you know, the author and owner of one of the most successful franchises of the last 50 years, yeah. along with a whole slew of other journalists and writers who have been at the top of their profession forever. I think the more that injustice gets balanced out the more people who used to be solely perpetrators of it but who are now are victimized by it that's where opening in dialogue can come when we can all say look i know what it's like to be victimized by this and now you know what it's like to be victimized by this and so instead of continuing the war where we're just going to keep using it against each other hopefully with increasing levels of destruction why don't we just agree that this entire framework is toxic. You know, I mean, oftentimes that's how war ends. wars end, right? One country bombs the other, the other one bombs the other. They don't end the war because they decide they love each other. They end the war because the destruction is so great on each side that they both have an interest to stop it. I think that's part of what we're starting to see now with this kind of more egalitarian distribution of these tactics is that hopefully people for who for a long time were immune to it and invulnerable uh, from it are now starting to feel its effects and that can open up the space where people can start urging some greater generosity, some greater appreciation of what our complexities are. I, that, that's, I hope that's right. That sounds nice. I don't, I'm not sure there's still not a lot of bombs left in the, you know, in the chambers ready to be fired off by different people and still more destruction on either side to come again. And I think you're right. Also, I don't have necessarily a lot of sympathy per se for someone like a, a JK Rowling. Um, but uh, I do think there is this, and, and when you're used to privilege and used to having a voice, it's not like that, you know, more dem democratization and more equality can feel like oppression in a way that's not really realistic to any sort of uh, exterior evaluation. But yeah, I, I do think there is sort of, I, I, some sort of cooling of the, uh, of the, of the discourse in terms of just temperature of it, I think would be. A great thing to achieve and maybe the world will be led in different ways by different less divisive you know world leaders or things like that than we have now in various in our mm -hmm. two respective countries for sure um that could sort of i, I mean the one thing i would add though that I, I do think i do think is important just to kind of quickly add, add to it that i think is a separate but really important ingredient is you know in especially in what western democracies huge numbers of people are suffering in their lives, right? Like mm -hmm. they've lost their community. They've lost their, the industries that used to provide them employment in their town. They've lost their religion. They feel like their culture is distant from them. They feel like the people in power have nothing in common with their lives. That's why we see things like Brexit and the election of Bolsonaro and the election of Donald Trump. And, you know, it's, these are kind of these are signals. These are symptoms of pathologies, rising suicide and decreasing life expectancy and rising addiction in modern Western democracies for the first time in decades. And when people feel kind of a lack of spirituality, a lack of community, a lack of connection, they feel frustration and deprivation in their lives. And social media, a lot of times, is their only opportunity to vent that, right? So I know like when I talk to new writers and new journalists who are like, oh my God, I don't think I can take social media. I feel so hated. I feel so condemned. What I always say to them is like, as somebody who's been through this for a long time now mm -hmm. in very intense ways, I say like, look, I know it's not easy. 
But sometimes you have to appreciate it's not actually about you. It's directed toward you. It uses your name, but it's really just them expelling their own frustrations. They can't do it at work. They can't do it to their boss. They can't do it at home. The internet is the place that they expel these frustrations. And sometimes I think we ought to think a little bit more about why there's so much anger that's finding expression on the internet. Like, where is this anger coming from? What is it about society that's not giving people the satisfaction that they need not to be so hateful and frustrated and angry all the time? No, that's a good point. And it's just sort of, it's sort of become this repository for this almost online made it to be uncharitable the sewage system people just dumping what they need to out of themselves mm-hmm. it's toxic into this uh into these apps for everyone else to sort of wade through um yeah so there's a way to get there'd be less of that built up in the world i think yeah we'd see a happier yeah healthier twitter for it to to pivot now i guess to unless you've any, if you have any other thoughts on on i think we should covered pretty well here the Martina story you did, which I get it. Encourage everyone to read. We'll link it in the description of the show. You, you and tennis now, and, and you are, you are a member of, of tennis Twitter itself. Uh, I'm just curious what, what what role tennis plays in your busy life these days, and, and what you think about the the sport that you're watching in recent years. Yeah, you know, it's definitely still the sport that I I like by far better than any other. Living in Brazil, where soccer is a national religion, and my children are fanatics. I've tried to learn it and I just don't enjoy the experience of sitting for three hours and watching a zero zero tie. So tennis is still um, to the great consternation of my own children, my favorite sport by far. And, you know, I think that it's facing some obvious challenges um, because the men's game has been dominated now for a decade and a half by the same small set of three or four people, Mm -hmm. um, really three. And every time there's new young players on the horizon who are decreed to finally be the ones to overthrow the hegemony, it never seems to happen to the point where, you know, a 34 year old won his first 22 matches or 18 matches or whatever it was to start the year with Djokovic and Nadal and, and Federer still being at the top of the game without any real competitors or challenges. Um, and I love those players as much as anybody. Um, but when a, it starts to get a little stagnant at some point, right? And yeah. um, especially because I do think it, it lacks that kind of personality clash that made tennis so popular and interesting, compelling in the seventies and eighties. Um, I think the women's game has always had more conflict and, and drama, um, and still does that, that does make it more interesting. It also has a more intense, uh, variance of, of style, right? Like the men's game is, you know, you have Federer, but beyond that, it's, it's very serve based, um, holding serve tie breaks, power baseline game is pretty yeah. much overwhelmingly where it's at. Whereas the women's game is much more uh, diverse in terms of tactics and strategies and the kinds of players who, who can win. But obviously with the Williams sisters on the way out, particularly Serena clearly on the way out, there's a lot of young, exciting players, but the question is, are any of them going to be real stars? My guess is, you know, Osaki probably is going to be, Osaka is probably going to be one. Maybe Sophie Kennan, Sophie Kennan, and a couple of others. But there's still a question mark hovering over the women's game as well. Um, so I'm super excited for it to start again once it's safe for it to do so. Because there are a lot of young stars who I find really exciting. I love watching um, Sisypus. I like watching Medvedev. Um, I love, um, you know, several of the new players in both the men and women's games. So I think the game is, has a bright future, especially the way it's becoming more internationalized, but thus far, there's not been that kind of overturning of the old guard that I think tennis really needs to establish its next superstars. And I I hope that naturally we do get sort of a transition period. I think this did happen pretty cleanly. Clean is not the right word for this match at all, but in women's tennis where you had a grand slam final that was Osaka beating Serena. Like, even though that match was obviously fresh right. controversy mm-hmm. things, it is a very clear, natural torch pass generation, mm-hmm. generational shift moment. And I'm not saying Serena's done. Serena could easily win the U.S. Open coming up if it does happen uh, next month. But I, I think men's tennis is sort of running out of time for that. I don't think you want to have a situation where the big three leave. And maybe we're already getting there. Maybe they're already not going to be beaten at their best. Maybe they're just going to be beaten because they get too old, you know, to compete anymore and they keep playing. And that's re- really the reason why they're losing 
yeah, I don't think the stagnation is good. I like you. I, I really do appreciate the sort of generation, the the personalities of players like Sitsipas and Medvedev, and Kyrgios to add him in again, who sort of who clearly make it more interesting and add a little more friction to the sport because they're people who are disruptive in this way. That yeah, I think, I think my my yeah. I think my favorite, I think my favorite own way. I'll, I'll for him. He is, but you know, he he hides it, and he's very yeah. managed, and and all that, and it and it's not usually in a charming way, which is fine. Like Connors and and McEnroe weren't particularly charming either in their worst moments. I think my favorite moment of twenty, what was it, twenty nineteen, in tennis was when Medvedev embraced in the most ingenious and mm-hmm. trollish way the booze and hostility from the u.s open crowd which for a young player to do with that level of poise and then reach the final was both hilarious and awesome to see yeah. that's the kind of you know personality that kind of like behavior that every brand manager and icm agent would have a heart attack watching that has been missing that we are starting to see in some of these younger players that I find really encouraging. And obviously curios is a prime example of that. He just hasn't found, you know, that ability to sustain his talent in any consistent way. What do you, what do you make of, of tennis as, as someone, obviously we were just talking about a bunch about, you know, culture in the world and, and stuff like that. What do you make of, of the culture of tennis? And obviously you met, you alluded during the main part of the show to, you know, what was going on with Zverev team in, in this COVID and there's a lack of social responsibility there. How do you see tennis as an outsider in, in this moment and what the sport's showing about itself during, during the stoppage time? You know, I think it's hard to say because there's so many different kinds of personalities. Yeah. I, you know, I do under, on the one hand, I do understand the impulse to get back to it. You know, I, as somebody who plays tennis is my primary activity, but haven't played in six months, you know, I've been dying to get back on, on, on the court. I barely leave my house. And that's the thing I'm, I'm looking forward most to doing with the idea that look, tennis is the old, it's kind of the sport that's built for the Corona virus pandemic, right? Because it's nothing but social distancing with one person on one side of the net and the other person far on the other. Um, obviously when you're talking about a professional tournament, it's much different. You're bringing tons of people together and we already saw that with the exhibitions. Um, so I, I don't really begrudge professional athletes who have a finite career, um, of wanting to get back on the tour. You know, I'm, I, I become friends with tennis Sandgren. So I, I, you know, part of my view of tennis is shaped by my friendship with him. And I mean, I know what he did throughout 2019, especially at the end, to become what I think is probably the most fit tennis player, if not one of the top five in all of tennis that enabled him to get to the quarterfinals of the Australian Open and have seven match points against Roger Federer to get to the semifinals. Yeah. When you've done that and then suddenly you can't play for six months, of course you're dying to get back on the court, right, for financial reasons and competitive reasons and all of that. So it's really hard for me to sit in judgment too harshly of people for wanting to return to a normal life. At the same time, when you are fortunate enough to be in a position of influencing public perception, you with that comes a responsibility, which is why watching Djokovic and Zverev and whoever else is there, I think uh, Victor Trochi and others, you know, in a nightclub without their shirts on dancing, sweating on top of each other was so grotesque because it's so reckless and has the potential to do so much damage. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how players, because obviously none of them have done much press or interviews during that, how they sort of look back on that time. And if I don't get the sense for team has talked a bunch of different interviews, I don't sense a lot of contrition from him. And he was defending Zverev being out, you know, clubbing when he was supposed to be in quarantine, even after the exposure and even after the positive <laughs> test started coming in. Team was saying, why are, you know, they're treating him like he's a, a child. They shouldn't do that. But also, Zverev is acting like a child. So I'm not sure what any of that was supposed to mean. But um, to, actually, I've really one loose thread on the, um, sort of wrap up a bit here. On on the Martina Project, is the Martina Project, do you think, does it have any hopes of continuing? Is it is it currently stalled in the water? What, what do you think is the future for you and, I guess, tennis journalism? And I will say also, you I didn't mention here, but you did also, I think you were credentialed to cover the uh, the Rio tournament a couple of years ago. So you had a, a actual dip walk in, in my sort of shoes for a bit. Yeah, I did. I, well, I've been going every year um, and I, had a, I got tennis credentials on purpose so I could go to the press conferences. And uh, 
Felix, you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation. I can't yeah. say his name. Yeah, made the semifinals, or actually he made the finals of mm-hmm. the tournament. It was like one of his the first kind of major accomplishments. And I was able to – there weren't very many people in the press room, so I was able to ask several questions that I found really – uh, you know, I didn't ask him about like how was your back end on the second set. I was asking him about his, you know, kind of trajectory and the culture of tennis and all of that. Um, in part with the the my my film in mind. It's interesting. I mean, the film stalled not because of any of the things I wrote about it, it stalled because in 2019 I got this a massive story about corruption at the highest levels of the Brazilian government that took up my entire work life, um, created a lot of war and conflict with the Brazilian government. And so I couldn't really work on the film because of that. Then obviously the pandemic stalled it. Writing that article about Martina and what made me so excited about the film in the first place actually reanimated my passion about the film. Oh, good. Um, And I already have begun speaking with some of the people who need to be spoken to about figuring out ways that we could maybe restart it. So it's definitely something I think it's so rich and so abundant as illustrated by the first part of our conversation where we talked about that era and Martinez role in it, um, that it's still very much something that I intend to do and, and want to do. Well, I'm wishing you the best with that. I hope for look forward to seeing it. Um, and keep us posted on the progress. Hopefully you find, uh, I guess you need to find a new director now also again. Maybe, maybe I, we, I, in the course of talking about it, I talked to that, that director who pulled out and, and we thought we, we, she got excited too by the article. So we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, we're gonna have to figure out how to get it restarted. Well, best of luck to you on that, Glenn. And thank you very much for uh, taking time coming on here. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think, I think your, your coverage of, of tennis is, is fantastic. And uh, it, um, I'm really uh, happy that you asked me to do this. And it's been great talking to you. Awesome. Thank you. So thank you very much to Glenn Greenwald for coming on the show. I hope you guys found that conversation interesting, different sort of episode than usual for us, but Glenn is dipping a toe in the tennis waters and looking forward to his documentary very much. And hopefully he has success in getting it made eventually. I want to thank all of you for listening once more. You can follow us along when you're not listening by following us at Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can also Support us on Patreon. It's the most wonderful way you could support us possibly. If you were able to do so, that would be great. I want to thank our new, actually no brand new Patreon backer since our last episode, but we did have Annie Kim bump up to a higher level of support. So thank you for doing that, Annie Kim. And we want to thank our Slam Champ backers, as always, Audrey Wellens, Joseph Haar, Susanna W., Mary Carrillo, Liz Kennel, Chuang Nguyen, Jonathan Weinbaum, and Betty as well as our GOAT backer, J-O-D. Again, if you want to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. We'd really appreciate your support there. And we have some new exclusive content to add to all the other exclusive content we already have there uh, coming soon. So that'll do it for us here. Have a good one. Bye, folks.